I really enjoyed singing with them. Did you enjoy that? These songs of the season just, they never get old. So touching. Let me just say personally, Merry Christmas to you. It's good to see, good to see friends and family and friends that are like family. Uh, we make no apologies necessarily, but just as a point of information, the children are in with us today. There's no nursery this Sunday or next, and so uh, they may add to the chorus. In fact, I think little Silas was in the back saying amen with the prayer of illumination a while ago at all the wrong times, but I liked it anyway. Uh, <laughs> it was glorious. I was just laughing back there. I thought, man, that's the way it should be. That's wonderful. Uh, the title of today's sermon is Moses Wrote of Me, meaning that Moses wrote about Jesus' coming. Um, we're going to be looking at John chapter 5, verses 18 to 47, which means we're taking a, a break in our normal consecutive exposition of the book of Exodus, but we're obviously not taking a break from wrestling with the writings of Moses because it's in John 5. Moses wrote of me as Jesus' assertion. By way of preliminaries, I do want to say that having the babies in is, is fitting since you know we talk about the baby Jesus and the birth of Jesus today. I also want to say that with regard to marking Jesus' birthday, probably 5 B.C., dated around the death of Herod, it was probably a dating mistake with the turn of time made by one well-intentioned theologian sometime later. However, uh, we also understand that whether or not Christmas happened in our month of December on this day, the idea of marking a day every year to remember that Jesus had a birthday is important. And also, Amanda Addington, happy birthday, because your birthday is today. And if anybody else has a birthday today, uh, you have that that honorable and noble and challenging task of sharing your birthday with Jesus. So there you go. I think it's worth saying. Uh, it is Jesus's birthday, and it's not trite because it is true. This holy day is built as a reminder of who Christ is. And so it's worth considering the incarnation of Christ all the time, but especially once a year to make time to think about it very carefully. And when we look at the Bible, and particularly the Gospel of John, and its emphasis, not so much like Luke would have on a global view or a known worldview of the coming Messiah, the birth of Jesus, the census, and so on, or not necessarily like Matthew, which records a more Jewish approach, Joseph and Mary, the betrothalment, the, the journey away after the birth to Egypt. But John takes a, a all-of-time view uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, the Word was, or in the beginning, the Word, and then the Word later in John chapter 1 was made flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. So the Gospel of John, the one that we're leaning into today, takes a whole view of time. It takes a whole view of the Godhead, God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And it takes a whole view of the Bible because Moses himself wrote. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible, otherwise known as the law. So in John chapter 5, when we read the moment of, of how Jesus asserts that Moses is witnessing to the coming of the Messiah, to the coming of, of Christ, to the coming of, of Jesus, he's asserting that the whole Bible from Genesis onward, and particularly the whole known Bible, the Old Testament as we would call it, Genesis through Malachi, is written testifying to Jesus. That's quite an assertion Jesus was making, and it is the 
It's, it's the, the exact point of conflict that our text begins in today, the point of conflict about the nature of the Son, the nature of Christ, and also not only the, the importance of the nature of God, but what the God-man came to do. And so looking at the text today, that's kind of how we'll look at it and wrestle with it, with the chorus of the kids and all, is as we look at John chapter 5, verses 18 to 30, we're going to think about the importance of the nature of Christ, or of the Godhead even, and also the importance of the work of Christ, of the Son that would come to look at in the second half, and the witness to that work as well, which would be verses 31 to 47. So let's, let's hear God's Word read now and see how the Law of Moses predicted this coming Messiah, and look at the witnesses here as an encouragement to us to worship the incarnate Lord Jesus. John chapter 5, verses 18 to 47. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel." For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man." Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out for those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own, but my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works That the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. 
yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? May God bless the reading of his word and minister grace unto all those who hear. What a text, first, that we might grasp what Moses said about Jesus more fully in understanding the importance of the nature of God. The Jews sought capital punishment against Jesus because they understood him to be breaking the first table of the moral law of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before thee, and remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. If you were to read the first 17 verses of John chapter 5, you would see his miracle of healing and doing good even on the Sabbath. He is working on the Sabbath as God would because, in fact, Jesus is God. At the same time, you see after John chapter 5, a miracle of feeding. Like manna from heaven, he feeds the hungry when they're gathered as a congregation. And so he's not breaking the Ten Commandments. He's quite well keeping them. The misunderstanding is about the fact that this is no ordinary man, but this is the God-man, the Messiah, Christ himself. So Jesus, healing on the Sabbath, pointed the reality that Jesus is God and that he was the Messiah to come. And though he's different in function, he's equal in essence with the Father. Hence, at the Godhead as Trinity or Triunity or Triune, Come to us as early as the plural of majesty in Genesis 1.28. Let us make them in our image. At the very least, God is acknowledging a heavenly host present at creation. The Godhead existed in eternity past, and slowly but surely, through inspired messengers like Moses and the prophets and then even the apostles, God revealed himself as triunity, as three in one. And God is letting us into fellowship he had within himself in eternity past. And this is love. When we say God is love, that's what we're talking about. God is love. The Jews sought capital punishment against Jesus because they thought he was making himself equal to God. But actually, he was declaring himself to be one with God. Andre Sue Peterson wrote, as far as Jesus being the Lord, Andre Sue Peterson wrote about the mission field in Manhattan, in an article that she wrote for World Magazine just this month. The subtitle is Planting Gospel Seeds Within a Bible-Quoting Uber Driver. She writes about how she had an hour-long car ride and a one-on-one conversation with a Muslim from Bangladesh. The driver acknowledged the Bible as a book second in importance only to the Quran, which you might have imagined, he would assert. Her Muslim driver preempted her proselytizing. He came at her with chapter and verse from Moses in Deuteronomy 18, where it says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. He said impressively, Muhammad is that prophet. He knew that she would claim Deuteronomy 18.18 for Jesus. 
and he was ready with his rebuttal. He had been trained. Jesus could not be the prophet like you that God promised Moses, he said, because Jesus was not like Moses. Moses had a mother and a father, while Jesus had a mother but no father. Moses died a natural death while Jesus was raised. Peterson said, what? Your proofs against Jesus are my proofs for Jesus. The reason Jesus didn't have a father is because God is his father. He was born in a manger of a virgin overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. Now the conversation shifted to human sinfulness and guilt and righteousness and the nature of the atonement without apparent resolution in that evangelistic moment. But the point is that Jesus had a father, God the Father. The Holy Spirit overshadowed the birth. This is the exclusivity of the claims of Christ. In John chapter 5 and in the Bible as a whole entire unit, Christ claims to be deity. So whether Muslim or even Jew, we disagree at this point. As Christians, the nature of the Son and the Son's equality of essence with the Father. Most heresies begin with a misunderstanding of the Trinity. That's often quoted, but also true. While we cannot fully understand God, and thus not fully understand the Trinity, we must make an effort to understand the basics of what the Bible says about God, or what God is saying about Himself more directly. I was listening to a podcast that I would recommend to you. It's titled Bible Talk. It's simply the title of it. And recently, Jim Hamilton was interviewing Steve Wellam, who taught my Systematic Theology 2 course, which I appreciated when I was at Southern. And he was going on about this very concept. And he speaks precisely, and so I quote him precisely. He said that we should speak of the Son as assuming human body and soul. Assuming human body and soul. The seed of the woman, promise, is unusual in Genesis 3.15, which we often teach is the first gospel promise, Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman, promise, is unusual because seed, in your Bible translation it may say offspring, but seed is associated with man, but here described as the seed of woman or Eve. In the course of time, the seed of Eve would be supernaturally provided for by the work of the Holy Spirit, and the seed from Eve would one day crush the head of the serpent, Satan, that had bruised the heel of God's anointed. The virgin conception helps us understand Christ's sinlessness. Again, Wellam, quote, Christ did not come into the world exactly the same way we do. We are automatically in Adam with guilt, legally polluted, depravity, Christ is the first man of the new creation, not like that. He is not legally in Adam in the same way that we are. There is no father. That breaking, that legal breaking with Adam is there. He's the first man of the new creation. He's described in 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 5 as the last Adam. He's the head of a new creation. This is how we explain our Lord and his nature, and it's what's being driven into and pressed into in John chapter 5. To explain transmission in terms of pollution, consider Luke chapter 1 verse 35. So the Holy One of God, 
You have the unique, sovereign, supernatural work of the Spirit, whose work is to sanctify or to make holy. And the Holy Spirit takes from Mary and sanctifies what is fallen. Christ assumes a nature, then, that is unfallen or unpolluted. And so by the agency of the Spirit and the absence of an earthly father, it breaks the legal relationship between a born man and Adam. God had to do it. He had to do it. Absence of the father breaks the legal relationship between Christ and man. We have two heads of the human race, Adam and Christ. We come into the world in Adam. Christ does not. Christ comes into the world as the first man of the new creation and is therefore able to bring about our redemption. Absence of the Father is important. The conversation with the Uber driver is important for the breaking of the legal relationship between Adam and Christ. The virgin birth describes Christ as utterly unique, yet does not remove his humanity. He lived and experienced in this fallen world, this sinful world, this painful world, this world riddled with suffering. He's not far removed from us, but is in a different category as well. He is like us, yet utterly different. He is, for now, fully human, a prophet like Moses. He lives through a divine and human nature. He knows what we experience in our humanity. In biblical categories, to be in Adam is to be under guilt, sin, and condemnation. To be in Christ is to have life. That doesn't mean that we're fully glorified yet, but John chapter 5 wrestles with these realities of already having life, even in a world filled with death. And so, now, Jesus, God, man, fully human, explains to us in the text, theologically, what it means to be in Christ rather than to be in Adam. To be in Christ is to be understood covenantally. He is our covenant head, our Redeemer, our Lord. We are growing in the grace He's provided. Like Romans 6 says, Reckon yourselves dead to sin, but alive to Christ. Even when you feel in Adam, you have to reckon what you are in Christ. And that is the the battle inside of us as born-again believers. Don Carson says it like this, Fundamental to all else that is said of Him, Jesus is peculiarly the Son of God, or simply put the son he is functionally submissive to the father and does and says only those things that the father gives him to do and say but he does everything that the father does chapter 5 verses 19 through 30 reiterates this jesus discloses nothing more nothing less than the words and deeds of god this presses in on the son and our sonship as born again believers the hope that we have Colin Cruz says in the Old Testament, God did sometimes allow human beings to stand in his place. For example, God said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. However, for human beings to make themselves equal with God was reprehensible. But in Jesus' case, it was not so because he was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Early church fathers, when responding to the Arian heresy in the 4th century, appealed to this and the following verses when asserting Jesus' equality with the Father. The early church preacher John Chrysostom said it like this, If Jesus had not wished to establish his equality and the Jews had made such a supposition without reason, Jesus would not have allowed their minds to be deceived. He would have corrected them. The evangelist also would not have remained silent, but would have plainly said that the Jews thought this, but that Jesus did not actually make himself equal to God. His assertion is picked up on, and that's where they're arguing. What is the nature of Christ? The SV Study Bible helps us here too. It summarizes this first set of verses well. 
making himself equal with God, Jesus was claiming to be the Son of God, not in the way that ordinary human believers are sons of God, but in the sense of one who was equal to God in his nature and in every way, yet who related to God in a father-son relationship. If Jesus had been merely a man, as his Jewish opponents thought, then this claim would have been blasphemy on Jesus' part, and that very law that they used to crucify him would have been justly used to crucify him. But in fact, it was not because they misunderstood who Jesus was. It goes on to say, Jesus' claim that the Son can do nothing of his own accord affirms that Jesus is equal to God, he's fully divine, and that the Father and the Son have different functions and roles within the Godhead, within the Trinity. The Son is subject to the Father in everything He does, yet this this does not deny their fundamental equality. We see that in verse 21, 22, 23, 28 uh, of chapter 20 as well. So 5 and then chapter 20 really riddled throughout John, or throughout John we have this concept. Only what He sees the Father doing may imply that Jesus had a unique ability to see the Father's providential activities in every event of everyday life, activities that are ordinarily invisible to human beings. John 5.23 tells us that to honor the Son is to honor the Father and vice versa. The statement that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father in effect establishes Jesus' right to be worshipped and also amounts to a claim to deity. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him shows that religions such as Judaism and Islam that consider Jesus merely a great prophet do not represent the truth about God because they fail to worship and honor Jesus like John 5.24 says. Has eternal life is one of the most striking statements in John regarding the present possession of eternal life. Eternal life begins immediately in a partially realized but significant way when one believes in Jesus. Those who believe can face the last judgment with confidence we find in John's other book, 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 to 13. So between the third and fourth miracles of seven, a complete number, in the Gospel of John, we have plopped in here this batch of teaching about the nature of Jesus, and it's absolutely fascinating and instructive and helpful and practical because it's telling us about who Jesus is, and we must get that right. It has everything to do with our worship. as has everything to do with our understanding of what a holy day or a holiday like Christmas is supposed to be about. The Son sees the Father, does like the Father, loves like the Father, has the power over life like the Father, gives life to whom He will, judges justly, is the prophetic fulfillment of the Son of Man language in Daniel 7, which we preached about last year. And He speaks persuasively and powerfully about the final prophetic judgment described in Daniel 12, verse 2. The exclusivity of the gospel claim is on display in verse 29. Look at verse 29 of John chapter 5, how helpful it might be. Just to hear it once more. And come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Look at the exclusivity language. This is, that is, works, a fruit of the root of salvation being described. It is not salvation by works. Some might say that among those who are justified by faith alone, then works enter into what things look like in eternity. I can't really weigh in on that too equivocally. I'll simply say this. There is no merit in you. There is no work in you that justifies you in God's sight. The scandal of the gospel is that Jesus did it for you, that you are saved because of Christ's finished work on the cross, a work that could not have began if Jesus wasn't born in a manger of the Virgin Mary. The whole thing connects, and it connects not only between the birth and the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, but it connects in eternity past. That is the witness of the Gospel of John. And this talk of death to life is consistent with the work of God the Spirit on every formerly dead, now-turned Christian. 
You were made alive by the Spirit's work of regeneration in you before you ever made a credible professing of faith outside of you. Consider Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5 on this score. The text says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Dead. Completely dead. Don't run past verse 1 too quick. You were dead. Spiritually dead in sin. No life. Dead. In which you once walked, verse 2, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience that crafty serpent Satan in the garden that deceived our first parents, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, born in Adam, you might say. Like all the rest of mankind, everybody lumped together. Regardless of how you grew up and what geography you're in, everybody, the rest of mankind, everybody, children of wrath. But God... But God, being rich in mercy, being merciful, because of the great love with which He loved us as believers, He set His love on us, even when we were dead, unresponsive, incapable in our trespasses, made us alive. He made us alive together with Christ. In Christ, by grace you've been saved. Do you affirm it? You're saved no other way. If you are saved at all, you are saved because of Christ's work. You'll never be saved by your own work. You can only be damned by your work. We're almost certainly hearing about the spiritually dead being made alive. And dead ears cannot hear the importance of the nature of God as triunified. They cannot partake in the love of inter-Trinitarian fellowship from eternity past because they must be born again, and so must we. Ask for the gift of belief. Say as one said, help my unbelief. One writer wrote, the teaching is important because he is who he is. Is the person of Christ, it is the person of Christ that undergirds our teaching from the Bible. And that's Christmas. The teaching is important because of who Jesus is. Not the other way around. That's not to marginalize the importance of the teaching. I miss the late R.C. Sproul. He shared this. He said about this very concept. He said, an incarnation means a coming in the flesh. John's prologue, the first part of the Gospel of John, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In this enfleshment of Christ appearing on the planet, it's not that God suddenly changes through a metamorphosis into a man so divine nature passes out of existence or comes into a new form of fleshliness. Only Sproul could say it like that, into a new form of fleshliness. By no means, no. The eternal second person of the Trinity takes upon himself a human nature and joins his divine nature to that human nature for the purpose of redemption. Christ the God-man coming into this world for the purpose of redemption. That's what Christmas is. And Sproul said it best. Moses wrote of Jesus in Exodus and in Genesis in the books of the law. And he wrote of Jesus so that we might grasp the importance of the nature of God in the fullness of time. And Moses wrote of Jesus so that secondly, we might grasp the importance of the plan of God. We might call it the work of Christ or here, to use the language of the text, the witness toward who Christ is and then what he was here to do. This is verses 31 to 47. We find these witnesses of Jesus. We've entered into the point in the Gospel of John the first of 11 witnesses, references rather to the Jewish leaders' plans to kill Jesus. They're going to kill him with good reason. They think that he is blasphemous, but he's not. 
to our first point, they've misunderstood the nature of Jesus. But nevertheless, this is moving into the section where they're trying to kill Jesus, at least some of the Jews, because some of the Jews would believe. But our text begins in chapter 5, verse 18 today, with their intent to kill Jesus. And John so shapes the gospel from here on out with many references to the Jewish leaders' plans to kill Jesus. When we get into verses 31 to 47, it's as if Jesus is talking about the witnesses that he has on his side for who he is and what he's coming to do. And it's as if he's also flipping the script on them and putting them on trial. As one commentator said, it might be right to think of this in terms of courtroom type language. And they think as the world that they're putting Jesus on trial. But in fact, Jesus very much has the world on trial. They're on trial, not him. That they don't understand it. And they don't understand it because they have a very sophisticated understanding of what they understand. If you look at these Jewish leaders as, as underdeveloped or, or not having good recall or lacking capacity, you've totally missed what's going on here. This is the creme de la creme. It's the cream of the crop. And Jesus is putting them in their place, but he's not putting them in their place as if they understand nothing. He's putting them in their place as if their very first starting point for understanding is wrong. If you get first things wrong, you get most things wrong. However right they may smell and they may seem through the senses. What Jesus says to them is, I am equal with God. I am the God-man. You don't understand my nature and you do not understand my purpose. Please listen, understand that you might be saved. You show right now that you are not. And in verse 34, it says it explicitly. If you look down at your text, it says in no uncertain terms, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things, why? So that you may be saved, subjunctive, it, that you might be saved. I want you to be saved so that you may be saved. And then it describes in verse 35, the burning and shining lamp. Not that the lamp is the light, but that these large dome-shaped torches fueled by rags soaked in oil that were used for walking outside to get light. These, these lamps were fueled. The light was not the lamp, but the lamp was to shine the light and shape the light and show the light. With extra containers of oil, the torches could last for several hours. And so what's being said here is that John the Baptist is like a lamp fulfilling prophecy. And then in verse 36, the works Jesus does bear witness as well, a healing and then a feeding miracle bracket this section of Jesus' teaching. As I've said already, his comments on this dispute about if he can legitimately be considered this long-awaited Messiah, the Christ child, is being answered by these witnesses from Christ for Christ. So you have John the Baptist witnessing. You have the words of Moses himself witnessing. You have the works of Jesus witnessing. Not to mention, as the rest of John will say, you have God the Holy Spirit witnessing. You have God the Father witnessing. All these witnesses, courtroom imagery toward the person of Jesus as well as the work of Jesus. I wouldn't mind holding her if you let me. He's gone. <laughs> Let's consider quickly verse 38. Verse 38 says, And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent which is him. He's talking about himself. Everything in here is red-letter words of Jesus. Of course, the whole Bible is Jesus' words in the sense that he gives it to us, but these are autobiographical. These are words right here, and John writes it down for him, rather biographical. And he says here in verse 39, 
you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. That's really something. Like we really ought to pause right there for a second. He's not saying that searching the scriptures is bad. It's quite good. What he's saying is that searching the scriptures alone does not guarantee you eternal life. You're not born again because of a basic familiarity with the Christian religion. My, my, how important John 5, 38 and 39 is for us today, isn't it? I mean, if you were born in Algeria, you wouldn't have this problem. You'd have another one. You'd still be lost and undone under God's right wrath until you heard the message of the gospel and received it. But you wouldn't be confused for cultural Christianity now, would you? Because there, there wouldn't be a cultural Christianity. But we have it here. We very much have it here. Like the Jews, where we can search the Scriptures and think that because we have a familiarity with them, we have eternal life. But the Gospel of John says it in no uncertain terms when thrice in John chapter 3, Jesus says, To a very familiar with the Scriptures man named Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born again. You must be born again. And he says, how does that even happen? And in the course of time, we think he came to understand and receive that being born again is a spiritual rebirth brought by that same Spirit that so provided for the birth of the Christ child. God is so at work in this gospel. He's so at work in this gospel. And God's work in this gospel is good news for you. So searching the Scriptures is good, but you must receive the meaning of the Scriptures, which is Christ Himself in His person and in His work. Listen to other verses that support this way of thinking. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. How from childhood, Timothy, you've been made acquainted with the sacred writings, the Old Testament, the writings of Moses even, which are able to make you wise for salvation. Not to make you saved because you're acquaintance with the Scriptures, but to make you wise for salvation. So it's good to teach the Bible to people, but it is not a one-on-one connection with being born again. To make you wise for salvation. What is salvation? How does it come? It comes through faith in Jesus Christ. I wonder if you might today announce faith in Jesus Christ. I wonder if you would receive this gospel and announce faith in Jesus Christ. You could be made wise for salvation through the catechisms, through the teachings of the gospel to you, the scriptures themselves, but you must receive what you've been made wise for. And it's, I don't need to write a prayer out for you. If you, in fact, are at that point, if the Lord has you at that point, then you simply need to have faith in Christ and pray to Him as such with faith and tell an older, wiser Christian that you've prayed in faith and that you believe yourself to be saved. And then we can talk about what it means to follow Christ in your life, what it means to walk with Him all the days of your life until you dwell in His house forever. This text tells us that every bit of Scripture is God-breathed, that He gave it all to us, all of it, not just the red letters, all of it. And it's useful for teaching, and so on and so on. What a useful word we have given to us by Christ the Word. It's, this statement in John 5.39 is not to marginalize the importance of this book. It's to undergird the importance of it as God's book. But familiarity with the book itself is, is not enough. Searching the Scriptures is helpful, though. Think about Acts chapter 17, verse 11 on this score. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, these Bereans were, for they received the Word with all eagerness. 
They examine the scriptures every day to see if these things were so. I wonder if you would examine the scriptures every day to see if these things are so. In 2023, as we head into the new year, find yourself a Bible reading plan. I've mentioned, we mentioned earlier, the service leader that Ligonier Ministries has a bunch of plans. You just click on it and print it. It's there. They've done a lot of the work for us. But, the, the, you know, Bible reading plans are ubiquitous. What I say to people is Bible reading plans are kind of like exercise plans. The best one is the one that you'll do. You know, just get one. And it's the one that you'll do. I personally like the McShane reading plan. It's, it's helpful to me. I like it a lot, but I don't know that that's what's helpful to you. Just, just pick one and, and give it a whirl because that panoramic reading of the Bible, that daily examining of Scripture is important for the Christian life. They thought, though, back to John 5, that eternal life is theirs because they had a heritage with the Scriptures. And so they missed the newness of the new birth the call to hear the evangelistic message implicit in the Gospel of John, believe on this Messiah, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And so they were, they were missing it. And a lot of theologians think, and I think they're right on this, that the Gospel of John was written evangelistically, perhaps to those that were in the Jewish fold, but to all of us. And so I've prayed for you today in preparation for today that you would receive this Gospel that you would live in light of this gospel based on who Jesus is and what he's done. All I want to do this morning is lift high the name of Jesus because the Bible says that he will draw all men unto himself if we just make much of Jesus, that his work will be done. It's not just intellectual. If it were, then these Jews, they wouldn't have got first principles wrong. They would have understood who Jesus was. God has to open your eyes. It's not because these people are unintelligent or lack capacity. It's because their eyes hadn't been opened. So I have prayed, and I need to pray more, and I want to pray more. And you can pray that I would pray more as your primary preaching pastor, that I would pray a lot more. Because I want to pray for you, as I've prayed this week for you, that the word would not return void, but that it would stir in your hearts, that God would open your minds to see. Numbers 21 in the writings of Moses illuminates this principle of who Jesus is with the lifting up of the bronze serpent. Deuteronomy 18 is the place where Moses wrote also of a prophet raised up like Moses, but also different, a better emancipator and law keeper. Luke 24, 27, post-resurrection on the Emmaus walk presupposes the law and the prophets were all to be understood in light of Christ. And it says about the Son in verse 27 that Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He talked to them about himself. What a teaching lesson. Wouldn't you have liked to have been there? How did he talk about himself? No. I think we have a lot of it because of what was brought to mind of the apostles in the epistolatory literature in the New Testament. I think we have a lot of it. But I don't, you know, it still would have just been neat just to listen, to be a fly on the wall. But Luke substantiates this claim that the Old Testament scriptures, Moses and all the prophets, were to be understood in light of Jesus, that we are to understand Jesus was predicted, prophesied about and that he came, and then he was right on time. And as we read to start the service, in the fullness of time, when the Son came, it was all perfect. It was all perfect. What a wonderful text. I wonder today, if you're in the trap of people-pleasing, and it's blinding you to just simply seeking to please the Lord. This is a tough one, a real tripwire. Roman says it like this in chapter 2, that they sought praise not from God, but from man. After teaching that there's only one true gospel and no other way, the Apostle Paul presented seeking glory from others rather than God in binary terms. Listen to Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. He said, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? 
Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. What a death to man-pleasing that the gospel lays in us, at least in germ. We are thieves of God's glory, and part of our dying to ourselves and living for Christ as Christians is dying to the approval-seeking, comfort-focusing, back-scratching, man-pleasing that pervades those who do not believe in the gospel of Christ, as is taught in John chapter 5. That's really the balance of the text in John 5, is talking about how they're seeking glory for themselves. Look at John chapter 5, verse 40, that you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. Jesus said earlier in John at the end of chapter 1, I know what's in a man. Not that he wouldn't get glory from people. It's just that that's not what's motivating him here. He's come to serve people, not to be served. Verse 42 of John 5, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. What a hard, hard saying to hear. What a hard saying to hear from God, right? You don't have my love in you. It doesn't abide or remain in you. Verse 43, I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. And then he, he talks about all the, the, uh, the Christ claimers, the messianic hopefuls. From the Maccabees onward, there were these messianic hopefuls, the Essenes and some of the sects that were out in the wilderness. And people would latch onto them. Even sometimes people of rank would latch onto them because they did have this, this messianic hope, but they didn't want a Messiah like this, and that's where they were missing it. They didn't understand the nature of God, and thus God's unfolding plan for the gospel to go to all the nations, that the gospel would go beyond and would be bigger than just one ethnic group of people, that it would come through a special group of people, but it would not stay there. It would go. They didn't understand it at all. Perhaps we wouldn't have either. And so he gets right at the guttural with them. He goes at their ailment. They're seeking glory from one another instead of looking to who God is. And he gets at who's really accusing them so that they can get down to the solution. So listen to how it ends. He says in verse 44, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek glory that comes from the only God? And i just say to you as a Christian, I don't want you to doubt your salvation because you struggle with man-pleasing. We all do. But each day of your sanctification, allow God's work in you to help you be less concerned with pleasing someone and more concerned with pleasing him. Because here's what I know. You can't serve them rightly if you're blinded by simply trying to be a man pleaser. If you look to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, he will help you understand how to serve people the way that they need to be served, and your man pleasing will get in the way of that. It's a real, real issue here that's this really articulated in John chapter 5, more directed toward the unbeliever, but it matters as we're kicking the flesh as well that we not be man-pleasers. And so think about that and pray about that as possible application for you from this text. But look at verse 45 now. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father, he says to these yet unbelieving Jews that want to kill him because they think he's blasphemous, because they think he's a, a lawbreaker. They said, there is one that accuses you, it's Moses. It's that great author of the law as God led him to write down Genesis through Deuteronomy. And he says, you've set your hope on him. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. There's continuity between our writings. And he says here, or I'm sorry, between the writings about me from him and the writings in the Gospels, I should say there's continuity, the life of Christ. He says, for if you believe Moses, you would believe me. For Moses wrote of me, those four words. It's really, that's why I wanted to preach this sermon today. Is those four words stuck out to me devotionally. Moses wrote of Jesus. What a wonderful thought toward the incarnation, right? Moses wrote of Jesus really takes you back. I mean, think chronologically. The New Testament is sewed up 1,500 years after Moses wrote of the Christ. 
I'm not saying that Moses understood every little aspect of the incarnation. I'm not saying that, but he wrote things knowingly or unknowingly about Christ. I, I think about that what we read earlier, Genesis 3.15, where there's this gospel promise that a child would come that would, would break up the monopoly on human sin. It would get us salvation, would help us to become heirs to salvation, it would crush Satan's head, our great archenemy. Finally, verse 47 of John 5 is instructive. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? John Piper picks up on this note of glory in his little devotional for Advent, the dawn of indestructible joy. He says, if there is a longing in your heart this Advent for something that the world has not been able to satisfy, might not this longing be God's Christmas gift, preparing you to see Christ as consolation and redemption and to receive him for who he really is? How is the heart prepared to receive Christ for who he really is? It's really very simple. First, the heart must become disenchanted with the praise of men. For how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? Second, the heart must become disenchanted with the sufficiency of money and, and things to satisfy your soul. The Pharisees who were lovers of money, Luke's gospel says, heard these things and they ridiculed Jesus for them. Third, there must come into the heart a longing for consolation and a redemption beyond what the world can give you. And fourth, there must be a revelation from God the Father opening the eyes of the heart so that it cries out like a man who stumbled into an incredible treasure. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the consolation of my past, the redemption of my future. Now I see you, now I receive you for who you really are. And I say with him, may this be your gift and your witness and the testimony of many this Advent. Thomas Goodwin, the great Puritan, wrote, The church receives the full attention of the beautifying work of every person of the Trinity. We have a father and a friend, a savior and a head, a helper and a beautifier. The word has been made flesh and dwelt among us, and that makes all the difference in this world. Amen? Let's take a minute and think about John 5 and what the Lord is teaching us through this text today. And then I will lead us in our final prayer.